Uh, well, mamas, mamas, I know you tried, right? I know you tried. Um, as Merle Haggard, any Merle Haggard fans out there? This yeah, woo! As he sang, Merle Haggard sang that country classic, I know you tried your best, but some kids, it's just they're born to rebel, right? Uh, no matter how hard you try to raise your kids right, kids grow up, they make their own decisions. Every mama knows. Every mama knows what it's like. Raising your kids to grow up, teaching them everything you have to teach them, and watching them, like, just chuck your advice, <laughs> open the window, chuck your advice out the window, and grow up to make decisions that, you know, they come to regret. And in this sense, mamas, you can understand what our great daddy in heaven feels when he watches his children grow up. You understand what the father feels as he raises his kids, his own kids, to be good, holy, righteous people, only to watch them become rebels, uh, like Merle Haggard. Uh, that's what I want to talk about with you this morning, rebellion, sin as rebellion. And not only is it Mother's Day, but it is week five of our current series. Our series is called uh, Sin, What Is It Really? Uh, sin, as you know, is this big word that religious people in church use all the time, but what is sin and what is it really? As we've talked about, the Bible doesn't really define sin ever. What the Bible does is just describes sin using pictures and stories and things that we can remember. And uh, some of the ways that, that sin is described in the Bible, sin is foolishness or sin is debt or, or sin is misplaced desire. And also the Bible describes sin as rebellion, uh, something that mamas know a lot about. Sin is what happens when we rebel, when we rebel against our, our mamas, against our daddies and against our God. Now, this word rebellion is actually a really big, important word in the Bible. Uh, the Hebrew word for rebellion is marad, and the word means to resist or rise against some authority, uh, control, or tradition. You might call a rebellion an insurrection, something that we've been talking a lot about in this country. And the words rebel and rebellion are actually frequently paired with sin in the Bible. Uh, like in Psalm 106, the psalmist says, Many times God delivered them, but they were bent on rebellion, and they wasted away in their sin. Or, as the prophet Isaiah says, Shout it aloud, do not hold back, raise your voice like a trumpet, declare to my people their rebellion, and to the descendants of Jacob their sins. Now, these verses are an example of what we might call Hebrew parallelism. <laughs> in which the author is drawing parallels between words to make the point that these ideas are the same. What the author is saying is that sin is rebellion, and rebellion is sin. To be a sinner is to be a rebel, and to be a rebel is to be a sinner. Now, we are not convinced of this. In our world, we actually like, we've got this soft spot in our heart for rebels. And by who that rebel is? James Dean, uh, our, our country, America, we're actually a product of the Enlightenment. And one of the pillars of the Enlightenment is that the only authority worth obeying is logic and rationality. So traditional sources of authority, like the church or the government, aren't worth obeying if they're getting things wrong. You know, the people who founded America were rebels. 
who rejected the authority of the king. Martin Luther was a rebel who rejected the authority of the pope, as was Galileo. And even today, we cheer and we venerate rebels. Rosa Parks courageously rebelled against a racist bus ordinance. Some of our greatest heroes are rebels. Even Jesus was a rebel. He took a stand against a corrupt institution for righteousness. We love him for it. So then, question, is rebellion a sin or not? Well, you can figure this out, but I'm talking about two types of rebellion. There is rebellion as sin, and there is rebellion as righteous cause. And the difference between rebellion as sin and rebellion as righteousness is who and what we are rebelling against. The rebels we cheer for are rebelling against corrupt institutions. They were standing up for righteousness. By contrast, the other kind of rebellion is people who reject God's authority, God's commands, not corrupt institutions. As the book of Proverbs says, evildoers foster rebellion against God. Not corrupt institutions, but against God. And this is where we come in. You see, when it comes to sin, we are all Rebels. We want to be these kinds of rebels, rebels who stand for righteousness, but really we are these kinds of rebels, rebels who reject the authority of God. You see, the Enlightenment would have us believe, the Enlightenment would have us believe that we are at our best when we are free of authority and when we answer to nobody but ourselves. But that's just not the case. We are at our best when we are living in submission to God. You see, we were made, we were made by God to be ruled. We were made to be ruled. Now, if you find yourself reacting to that statement, it's because you are a child of the Enlightenment. (laughs) But we were made to be ruled, not by a dictator, not by someone who bosses us around and controls our lives. No, we were made to be ruled by a benevolent father who gives us freedom power, and even autonomy. This is when we as human beings are at our best, when we are living in submission to a loving father who knows what's best for us and gives us the freedom and the power to pursue it. And when we ignore God's will for our lives, his good, pleasing, and perfect will, says Romans, when we go our own way, we become rebels who must accept the consequences of our rebellion. This is what we do with our lives. So many of the messes that we get into are because we are rebelling against God. God tells us how to do marriage and sex, and we decide, you know, we're going to do it our own way. God tells us to spend our our money in a certain way, and we say, no. God tells us how to do church and how to do relationships at church. We're like, I think we want to do something else. God tells us how how to worship and even how to treat our enemies, and we just don't like it. God tells us how to treat our bodies, and we're like, nah. That's not just a different way of living. That's rebellion. It's not rebellion with pitchforks. It's not rebellion at the Capitol, but it's spiritual rebellion. We are all rebels. But in this sense, we are not alone. And we are not the first. In fact, the story of the Old Testament in the Bible is the story of God enduring with rebellious kids. The nation of Israel in the Old Testament is actually portrayed as a group of rebellious teenagers that God just kind of has to keep putting up with. 
But there's this one story in the Old Testament in which we see the rebellious nature of Old Testament Israel in particular and people in general. And I think this story has a lot to teach us about sin is rebellion and how God responds to it. And this story is the one that I want to kind of focus in on with you this morning. The story comes from the book of Numbers. Now, if you don't know, the book of Numbers is the fourth book in the Old Testament, fourth book in the Bible. It tells the story of the Israelites wandering throughout the wilderness after their escape from Egypt. You see, God heard their cries, the cries of his children down in Egypt. He sent Moses and then Moses and Aaron down to rescue his children down from uh, Egypt, rescued them from slavery. And then he has a new homeland prepared for them, the land of Canaan, but they got to get there. And and it's it's a long trip through a dusty wilderness, And as we find out, the children of Israel, they're not good travelers. Uh, They complain, they gripe, they get in fights in the backseat of the car. They're just not good travelers. They get grumpy. Uh, The Bible says that they grumble a lot. That's what they do in the back of the car. They grumble. Are we we there yet? Are we there? She's hitting me. They just grumble. And the book of Numbers actually has a word to describe their behavior in the back of the car during this long road trip, the book calls them rebels. God's rebel children in the back of the car. The word rebel actually occurs in Numbers like eight times to describe the Israelites. And we see this very clearly in Numbers chapter 14. So in the story, in Numbers chapter 14, God has taken his people right up to the boundary of the promised land. God took this massive group of people right up to the boundary of the promised land uh, to see their new homeland, the land of Canaan. As they could see, it was a spacious land uh, with milk and honey flowing and and houses and, and food. But this land, it also had people in it. People that, from their perspective, look like giants, people with muscles, people with weapons. And after spying out this land, the Israelites are terrified to go in. God assures them, hey, I can help you. I can help you defeat these people. But the Israelites, they just will not hear of it. And here's what they say. They say this. If only we had died. Wow. If only we had died in Egypt. Or in this wilderness. If only we were dead right now. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? We should choose a leader. We should go back. So this is a brewing rebellion. This is like them like talking amongst themselves in the backseat. How are we going to take over the car? The people are terrified of where they're being asked to go. They want to go back to Egypt. Even if they die there, they would rather die in Egypt. So they decide to elect a a new leader. Okay, so you grab the steering wheel and I'll cover dad's mouth. And that's how we're going to redirect the car. Now, at this point, Moses and Aaron, their actual leaders, they they fall down on the ground in front of them. And, And this is what they say. The land we passed through and explored, it's exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and he will give it to us. Only, only, please, children, please do not rebel against the Lord. That's the line. Do not rebel against the Lord. Don't do this, they say. God can help us. And remember, the Israelites have seen the power of God demonstrated in vivid ways. They saw ten plagues in Egypt. They saw an ocean like split in two. They saw like a pillar of cloud and fire leading them through the wilderness. They saw that and they don't think that God can help them take over this land. They have to believe that God can give them this land. But how do the Israelites respond to this very logical argument? Here's how. 
But the whole assembly talked about stoning them. <laughs> that is their response to this clearly made logical argument. Good point. We're going to kill you instead by throwing rocks at your head. Okay. You know, you never, if you're a parent, don't expect your children to behave rationally. At this point, though, in the story, at this point, what, what happens? Mama shows up. And Mama's angry. Uh, the glory of God, who delivered the Israelites, appears. And, and he says, I, 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 I'm done. <laughs> this has gone on long enough. I am up to here. Uh, I have had it. And then what, you know what Mama decides to do? Mama decides to kill all of them. <laughs> that seems irrational, but, but mothers? <laughs> you, maybe you get it. You know, children, I'm, I'm done. I've had it up to here. Today is the day you're all going to die. Maybe mothers, you won't admit to that. But children, if we have children here, has your mother ever said that? Like walked into the living room and today you're going to die, son. Like, <laughs> Here's what mama says. The Lord mama. It's not a new title or anything. I'm not like rewriting orthodoxy. For the sake of the message, the Lord mama says, how long? How long will they refuse to believe in me in spite of all? You got you to just picture the Lord Mount like doing this with their hands. How long will they refuse to believe in me in spite of all the signs I performed among them? I will strike them down with a plague and destroy them. But, but, I will make you, Moses, my favorite child. <laughs> I will make you, Moses, my favorite child, into a nation greater and stronger than they. Basically, God says, the Israelites, I'm gonna, they're going to perish, but I'm going to start over. I'm going to start over with you, Moses. I built a new nation from, from Abraham. I'm going to build a, a, a new nation from you. I'm just going to start over. Uh, my wife actually said this to me once. Man, I think I want to start over. New kids, new husband, new kitchen. Just start over. No, she's never said this, but every now and then I look over at like, difficult days, and uh, I see her like, thinking, I'm like, oh, just weighing the pros and the cons, the risk-reward. You know, this might be it. Anyway, this is what Moses says. He says, I'm going to start, or this is what God says. I'm going to start over with Moses. Now, now if you were Moses, how, well, how do you think you'd respond to this idea? You're like, well, that's a bummer for them. But a whole bunch of Moses running around in my own nation, people from my own loins, like everybody, you know, we call ourselves the, the mosaics. But what does Moses say to this suggestion? He actually turns it down. Turns it down. He says, God, as appealing as that is, don't do that. And, and he makes this really bold argument to God. He says, if you do that, all your enemies are going to know that you couldn't get her done. They're going to know that you brought your children up out of Egypt, but you couldn't get them in the promised land. And you like lost your cool before you actually completed it. The deed. That's a bold argument. Like, God, don't do this because you'll be a failure. Uh, God doesn't kill Moses at that point, so Moses decides to keep going. And he goes for broke. What he does is he reminds God who he is. He reminds God what he has said about himself. He says, now may the Lord's strength be displayed just as you have declared. He's saying, like, you said this a while back, God. You said this, I'm going to remind you that you said it. The Lord is slow to anger, abounding in love, and forgiving sin, and the thing that's happening now, rebellion. 
in love, in accordance with your great love, forgive the sin of these people, just as you have pardoned them from the time they left Egypt until now. So basically, you've, you've pardoned them here, 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 and here. You have to forgive them here. Also gutsy, right? God, I think you're forgetting who you are. You said you're a forgiving God. You said you would forgive sin and rebellion. Show the world your strength. Show the world your strength, not by destroying these people, but by forgiving them. Different kind of strength. And what does God do to this argument? God actually works out a compromise. It's like, okay, not going to destroy them today, but they're not going to get in. They're not getting in the promised land. They're going to wander around the wilderness. That's how they're going to live their lives. It will be their children who will enter the land. And that's what happens. So that's the story of the Israelite rebellion. It's, it's both a perplexing story and an important story. It's perplexing because God seems to change his mind based on Moses' prayer for forgiveness. Moses seems more forgiving than God does. That's weird. But this is one of the lessons of the story. You see, we have influence with God. That's what prayer is. Prayer is influence with God. We have influence with God, especially, especially when we appeal to his grace and compassion and mercy. They're like his soft spots. Like when you remind him of of how gracious and merciful and compassionate, he's like, oh, you got me in my soft spot. And you got me there. Okay. It's like God wants to be forgiving. God God had every right to judge this nation. This is not an isolated incident. This had been happening for a long time. God had every right to get rid of these people after everything that he'd done. He had every right to get rid of these people, but he's also gracious and compassionate. God, and Moses, like, pushes him in a spot. Like, okay. I can endure a little longer. So that's why the story is perplexing. But the story is also important because it becomes to Israel and it becomes to Christians even a lesson to not let it happen again. That's that line. Only do not rebel against the Lord, Moses says. As the book of Hebrews says, centuries later, in reference to this moment, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. That's this story. During the time of testing in the wilderness. So in the Bible, the story of the Israelites rejecting the promised land becomes exhibit A on what sin as rebellion looks like and how terrible it is. There's a lot that we have to learn about spiritual rebellion from this story, and that's our problems. The the problem is that we are all spiritual rebels in rebellion against God. But what is that? What is spiritual rebellion? Well, that's what I want to talk about. I want to share with you four things that we have to learn from the story about what spiritual rebellion is and how God responds to it. For example, we learn that rebels are afraid. Rebels are afraid. What was it that kept the Israelites from entering the land? Fear. We can't attack those people. They're stronger than we are. Ah! We we think that to be a rebel is a courageous act. Grab your sword, stand tall. But when you rebel against God, you rebel out of fear. You're afraid that God's not going to take care of you. You're afraid that God isn't going to stay true to his promise. So you chart your own path. But it's not because you think it's a better path. It's because you think it's a safer path. 
and you prefer safe because you're afraid. Maybe, for example, you're having a hard time saving and giving money. That's one of the things the Bible says God's people should do a lot of, uh, save and give money. We should spend money, but we should also like, save and give money. Um, what keeps us from doing that? Taxes? The government? Low wages? No. Fear. Fear that we're going to miss out on buying that cool thing. Fear that we're not going to be happy in our small little apartment while all our friends are taking out irresponsible mortgages to buy big houses. Fear. But this is what God tells the Israelites. Trust in me and you're not going to miss out. Obey me and I'm going to give you what I promise. I'm going to take care of you in all the important ways. And living comfortably on earth is not one of the important ways. It's hard, though. It's hard to trust God. We don't want to do it. We're afraid we might miss out, so we rebel in all kinds of ways. We spend, we waste, we hoard, we take out loans we shouldn't. That's not just like irresponsible or a different decision. That's rebellion. But it's not because we're principled. It's because we're terrified. Terrified that we're going to miss out on what the world is offering us. Rebels are afraid. We also learn rebels... Take it out on their leaders. Rebels take it out on their leaders. When God directs the Israelites to fight their enemies and enter the land, and they don't want to do it, what do they do? They decide to elect new leaders and stone the old ones. They say, we should choose a leader, choose a new leader, go back to Egypt. Almost always, spiritual rebellion is directed against our leaders. God appoints leaders to lead us, but leaders, by definition, take us in some difficult directions, and we don't always want to go there, so we rebel. But here's the thing, we're not just rebelling against our leaders, we're rebelling against God. Here's the way Paul puts it in the book of Romans. He says this, everyone should be subject to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except that which God has established. Hmm. The authorities that exist have been established by God. So, whoever rebels against that authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. Whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. Now, I'm not going to deny that's a complicated verse. There's plenty to discuss here. My point, though, is that in some sense, according to Paul, who wrote, inspired by the Holy Spirit, in some sense, in some sense, the, the leaders in our lives are ordained by God. We can't rebel against our leaders without rebelling against God. God made your mama your mama. God made your daddy your daddy. God made your president your president. God made your pastor <laughs> your pastor. Now, does that mean they deserve blind allegiance? Absolutely not. I would never expect that. 
Rosa Parks was right to not move from her seat. Maybe my point here, though, is simply that it should take us a very long time to reject the leaders God has placed in our lives. It should take us a very long time to decide to reject their leadership. By contrast, as people of the Enlightenment, we make that decision like this. Boom. Oh, my pastor just said something I disagree with. I'm going to look for a new church, like next week. Oh, I don't like this president. Eh, impeach. Oh, I don't like my parents. Unfriend. <laughs> oh, I don't like this law. Ignore. Now, maybe you get to that point, maybe you get to that point, but not without really wrestling with what the Bible says, that when we, what the Bible says, that when we rebel against our rulers, we rebel against the God who rules over them. And we rebel against the God who rules over us. Rebels are afraid. Rebels take it out of their leaders. We also learn, thirdly, rebels face the consequences. After testing God one too many times, the Lord decides he's just had enough. Moses intercedes and God stays his wrath. But God does punish his people by making them wander in the wilderness. What's really interesting here, though, is that after they realize their mistake, what do they do? They try to undo it. They try to go into the land anyway. But it doesn't work because God doesn't go with them. Here's what happens. Then the Canaanites, who lived in the hill country, came down and attacked them and beat them down. They beat them down all the way to Horma. Now, I don't know, I know you don't know where, where Horma is, but this is like a biblical smackdown. Uh, it's a long way away. It's like getting your, your butts kicked all the way to Kansas. There are consequences to rebellion. We can't escape from those consequences either, no matter how much we try to unwind the clock. I mean, have you ever said something that you wish more than anything you could take back? And you realize you just can't. Have you ever done something that permanently changes a relationship for the worse. As much as we would absolutely love to rewrite history, that's just not how God set it up. In a sense, that seems kind of unfair. I mean, in this story, God looks kind of mad and vindictive in his response to the Israelites' sin, right? I mean, you're going you're gonna to make them like wander around and die in the wilderness? Come on, God, they've had a long trip. They're not thinking clearly. They, they said they're sorry, God. Come on, they said they're sorry. Just, just let them in. God seems kind of vindictive here. But this is where God and us are different. God's not afraid to let us suffer the consequences of our rebellion. He wants us to learn to take responsibility for our actions. He wants us to learn the power we have to choose our course. By contrast, we're always rescuing people from their rebellion. Right? You mamas know this. You dads do too. Uh, when your child makes a bad decision, what's your instinct? My instinct is to jump in and rescue them from it. I'll find a way to excuse it. And sometimes you need to do that, but sometimes you just need to let your child accept the consequences of their action, right? No, I am not going to bring your homework up to school for you for the 50th time, or your trumpet, or your tuba. You left them at home. 
No, I, I am, I am, you cannot go out this weekend. You decided to not clean your room. No, you cannot move back home. You need to learn to take care of yourself. Your bedroom is the sewing room now. I have moved on. That's how God needs to treat us for our own good. You can't be a rebel and not face the consequences of your rebellion. God respects you too much to let you off the hook. That doesn't mean that you can't be forgiven, and that doesn't mean that God doesn't have new opportunities for you. And this is the last thing we have to learn from this story. Yes, there are consequences for our rebellion, but you can be forgiven. Rebels can be forgiven, and there's new opportunities for rebels. Rebels can be forgiven, but also at a cost. Rebels can be forgiven, but at a cost. You see, rebellion is sin. Uh, This means that it drives a wedge between God and us. It marks us as people not fit for heaven. God's not going to have rebels in heaven. Um, So there's a problem here. Rebellion can be forgiven, though. As the prophet Jeremiah writes, I will cleanse them from all the sin they have committed against me. I will forgive all their sins of rebellion against me. God hates rebellion, but he loves sinners. Whatever your rebellion, he can forgive you as a rebel. He wants to. He wants to give you another chance. But God's forgiveness does come at a cost. It's not altogether free. One of the things that scholars point out about this story in Numbers 14 is the sacrifice, the sacrifice that Moses makes to secure God's forgiveness. Remember that God offers Moses his own nation. God offers to rebuild his people out of Moses' children. Moses could be the father of his own country. That had to be appealing. The Israelites had been a thorn in Moses' side since he first became their leader. God offers him his own people. And what does Moses do? Moses turns it down. He says, no, I love these people too much. God accepts the sacrifice and forgives the people. Christian interpreters, this is interesting. Christian interpreters see in this moment a foreshadowing of God's mercy through the sacrifice of Jesus. You see, God is well within his rights to destroy every single one of us. He would be perfectly justified getting rid of us and starting over through Jesus. He could just start over again with Jesus, his perfect son, make a big new nation filled with perfect little Jesus-like children. He could have done that. But what does Jesus say? No, don't do that. Take my life instead. Accept my sacrifice for their sins, for their rebellion. Let me pay the cost, forgive them with my life. And with his sacrifice, God does so. God forgives the rebels. And when I say God forgives the rebels, I mean he literally forgives the rebels. Uh, Maybe you know that Jesus was crucified with two other people next to him that day, two other criminals. And there were three crosses on the hill, Jesus and two criminals. Now the Greek word used in the gospels for these other two criminals, the Greek word is leistos. Oftentimes it's translated, maybe you know, thief. Jesus was crucified next to two thieves. But a better translation of that word is rebels. Matthew and Mark even make the point and record it like that. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right, one on his left. 
These rebels may have even been uh, insurrectionists who were involved in some sort of plot against the Jewish or the Roman government. This is what they did with rebels, insurrectionists. Their identity as rebels here actually makes a lot of sense if you think about it. It makes a lot of sense that these are rebels, not thieves. I mean, the Old Testament spends a lot of time trying to cast Israel as rebels more so than thieves. And the gospel writers are, I suspect, intentionally putting a point on it that Jesus died for the rebellion of Israel. Jesus died for rebels like them, like us. Now, of course, only one of the rebels takes Jesus up on it. From the cross, he asks for Jesus' forgiveness. The other rebel insults him. And this is important. We can be forgiven as rebels if we ask A lot of us, we're not ready to be forgiven. We have not yet realized that we are currently living in a state of rebellion. But you are. You might not look like a rebel. You might not be holding a sword. You don't get up in the morning, look in the mirror, and say, today I'm going to rebel against God. But every time you reject God's will for your own, you're rebelling. Every time you mistreat somebody, every time you gossip, every time you waste God's money, every time you watch something you shouldn't, You're rebelling against God, and you will eventually suffer for it, if you not already are. But you can be forgiven. You can be forgiven for your rebellion by the loving sacrifice of the one true rebel. You and I deserve to be destroyed, but remember God's soft spot. What's his soft spot? When somebody asks for him to be merciful, and that's what Jesus did on our behalf so that we might not perish at the hand of mama. It was so that we can live forever instead. But it is Jesus alone who can take you into the land. It is Jesus alone who can atone for your sins. It is Jesus alone who can give you what you want and need. Where mama tries, Jesus does. 